Do you guys remember when bird scooters hit the scene? (laughs) Do you remember this? So when our church was downtown, 2016, 2019, that's kind of when we started noticing them. And we were down on Marietta Street, lots of tourist spots. We were right across the street from the uh, aquarium, uh, Centennial Park, College Football Hall of Fame. Not worth your time or money. Um, (laughs) But anyway, where the church was located downtown, there was a lot of like touristy spots. And so people would come into the city, they would ride the train in or whatever, and they would like rent these scooters and, you know, and die. Basically, they would, you know, these poor people from McDonough just wee up and down the street. And, um, but what we noticed over time was like more and more birds were landing on the sidewalks. And I looked forever for this photo. I had taken a picture from the top of our church building looking down on the Marietta Street. There must have been 30 bird scooters down the sidewalk and it was just so unreal. And there were lots of opinions about the bird scooters. Maybe there still are. Um, it's just not a concern of mine anymore unless, we, unless they fill up our porch, which they do sometimes. Um, but people loved them and then some people didn't love them. You know, they hated them actually. And often what uh, we would do for lunch is we would walk to the CNN Center, had a food court. And so we would walk to the CNN Center uh, to get lunch uh, back in those days. And you would walk past this Chick-fil-A, which is right next door to the College Football Hall of Fame. And the entrance to Chick-fil-A was just right on the sidewalk there. And we were coming back from lunch one day and we were passing Chick-fil-A and there was some bird scooters up against the stair rail. And there was one kind of a, somehow at the top of the staircase going into the Chick-fil-A. I don't know how you get it up there. And this guy comes out of Chick-fil-A. And this is right when we're walking by. And he says something that I'm not supposed to say from the pulpit about the bird scooter. He's very upset about the bird scooter being in his way. And then he starts to yell at the bird scooter. Okay. So Lindsay and I are like, I could sit here for a minute and check this out. And he just starts getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And then we see him pick up the bird scooter above his head. And then he throws it into the sidewalk. And it's it's a huge noise. Now, just so you know, no one is coming out of Chick-fil-A at this point. Everyone's just up against the window. The people that work there aren't coming out. Nobody's coming out. The guy whose scooter that was, not coming out. And so he throws it into the sidewalk. And then he picks it up again. And he slams it into the sidewalk. And he did it again and again. And he's yelling. And then it just gets way out of hand. And then eventually he gives up. And he leaves with the scooter dead in the background. And Lindsay and me, I don't know who said it, but we were just like, I am so glad we got to see that. (laughs) You know, this was a moment. We didn't film it. We we just enjoyed it. At a distance, of course, uh, because those things can fly. Uh, so glad we got to see that. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were just sort of at a loss for words because of what you were seeing, you know? And if you were listening, I know you were listening because you were laughing at, at the gospel reading. This is just one of those stories. This is one of those scenes in the life of Jesus uh, where the disciples that were with them were just sort of at a loss for what they were seeing Now, this is traditionally known as the transfiguration story. That word is the Greek word metamorpho, where we get metamorphosis. So there you go. This change 
of form. Something happens to Jesus. It's a pretty trippy story. I'm not going to like skirt around that. Um, I wanted to show you this. I drew this for you. It's very, it's very technical, but Mark's gospel is situated on top of three pillars. Are you with me on this? Do you like my artwork? Uh, there are these three events in the life of Jesus that Mark seems to flow in and out of. The first is Jesus' baptism. The second is today's story, the transfiguration. And then the third pillar is the resurrection. Everything sort of flows in and out of these three uh, stories. Now, they're all, uh, all of these focus the reader's attention on the identity of Jesus. That's their purpose, who Jesus is. That's what these stories do. They show us something about who Jesus is. And of all three, I would say the transfiguration scene is the most bizarre. It's the most mysterious. I mean, the resurrection is still kind of like a head tilter, but you can kind of like get your head around that a little bit. This thing that we're looking at today is a little bit uh, more mysterious. So I have just like a few things about this story I want to share with you and then, um, and then hopefully give you some, some encouragement as well. First, and you probably already know this, there's no managing this story down to something that we can completely understand. I think it's important when we read the Bible or hear these stories in church that we just kind of admit that like, well, this one's sort of weird, right? This one's strange. Some things we run into with Jesus and they're just other than. They're very different and strange and we're not really permitted to have all the answers to every weird and strange Jesus occurrence. It's just there. And even the writers of the Gospels, as they're putting these stories to paper, uh, the, very, the very use of words to describe this is a demotion of what's happening. I had a professor tell us in seminary once like, about scripture. It's like, as soon as you begin to use words to describe what is basically indescribable, you're demoting the thing that you're describing. You're giving it language that it supersedes. And so even the gospel writers are putting this story down. It's kind of a demotion of the experience into something maybe more earthbound, more portable for the reader. I don't know. But even then, we're not all that satisfied with the outcome because it's still just so strange. I'll also tell you that there's no theologian or academic scholar uh, that exists that can really help clarify this story. You know, if they say they can, then... They're lying. The writers of the Gospels uh, do this often. It, it kind of makes me laugh, but they, they retell these stories as if to say, here, you see what you can make of it. There's no explanation as to what's happening. So our best, most reasonable option is just to hear it for what it is, just to listen to it. The second thing I want to say about this story is one of the things this story does, and this might be the most important part, is this story reminds us that when we're dealing with Jesus, that you and I are not dealing with like a better version of ourselves, but with someone who is well beyond us. Amen? It's easy for me, and perhaps for you as well, to approach Jesus as someone that, if I work hard enough, I can kind of get my head and hands around it to the point where I've got Jesus like managed, nailed down, under control and in my pocket, safe. But this story reminds us that we can't really do that. You know, you think about like uh, 
the doctrine of the incarnation, which is the fancy word of God becoming flesh, human. That Jesus is somehow both human and divine. This presence of God in human form is very difficult to get our heads around. I like the way Eugene Peterson translated it from John 1.14 saying, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That God has moved into our presence. The presence of God became an in-person, tangible presence, able to be seen and heard, touched, even murdered. And it's a very powerful thing, you know? But thinking about Jesus in human terms is still difficult, as, as it is difficult to think about him in divine terms. I think about, uh, like when C.S. Lewis was trying to describe this, uh, talking about, you know, basically like, well, yes, Hamlet, he would say, can know who Shakespeare is, but only insofar as Shakespeare writes himself into the play. That's about the only way that Hamlet would even know about Shakespeare. C.S. Lewis says, We only know about God if God has written something about himself into our world. And he has. The disciples themselves struggled at times to keep Jesus as earthbound as possible. To help usher him into this political and powerful presence and leader in and of Israel. They tried that. Even after the resurrection, they're like, cool resurrection. Um, Is now the time you're going to restore Israel? Like, they're still kind of like in this mode. But there are these moments, this one in particular, when Jesus removes that impulse and says, in so many ways, um, I will not be contained in such ways. And I think for a lot of us, the earthly Jesus can be more attractive than the divine Jesus. The divine Jesus makes you and I kind of crazy, right? When we talk about Jesus out in public in divine terms, we're just weird at that point. It's easier to domesticate Jesus. And stories like this one are reminders that we are often unwise to try and do that and to contain him in our buckets of understanding. Jesus is not that easily manageable. Jesus is completely other in this story And the disciples are kind of waking up to that. I just love Peter's response. Actually, I love what Mark says about Peter because he didn't know know what else to say. What else do you say in this this moment? The third thing I want to say about this story, three points today, are you excited about that? (laughs) There's always a phantom fourth point. But the third thing, and it's quite important for us, is this story has within it this moment of wonder. Look at what Peter says. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. It's good. It's good for us to be here. This is one of the big moments in the story. There's a lot of things to learn from this story, but this one statement from Peter might be the most um, correct thing he has said in the story. It's good for us to be here. We're terrified, but this is amazing. And I think it's good for us to have moments 
when the greatness and the otherness of God breaks through our otherwise predictable and manageable lives. Amen? Sometimes I hear myself talking about Jesus in purely academic terms, like he's only this historical figure relegated to uh, the libraries of theology, almost like he's dead. I find myself doing that sometimes, especially if I'm getting in a, a, a heavy conversation about scriptural interpretation. I end up finding myself and hearing myself talk about Jesus as if he's dead and gone. And my question for you is, have you been there before? I think if all of us are honest, there are times when the human Jesus is just easier, but the divine Jesus is more complicated. Now, in terms of faith, I don't think faith is a thing that excludes mystery or doubt. Uh, Faith is the thing that is quite often born from doubt. As doubt is a space from which we begin searching and looking for answers and presence and transcendence. As Dostoevsky said, my Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. That's where my faith comes from. And then there are these times by God's grace that I once again come awake to the presence of Christ in my life. When Jesus leaves the pages of the Bible and becomes more known, felt. I mean, I've sat in that pew for five years since we bought this building, right over there. And, you know, there's many worship services where I'm hearing the songs. You know, maybe you're the same way where it's like, mm, this is great. Uh, this is a terrible song. Um, <laughs> I don't like this song. Or something in the song is like, that's weird. Um, we used to, when we were downtown, we had this like friend of mine who was Jewish who was coming to church every Sunday. She was on our, on our host team. And uh, she would come up to me often after the service and go, I have some questions about some lyrics <laughs> that I saw on the wall, you know. And uh, I was like, okay, well, let's talk about that. Why so much blood, you know? Um, Which I was like, have you read your texts? I mean, like, it's a lot of that. A lot of that. But I mean, I've definitely sat there many a Sunday, and it's just just music. But there are some times where a song that we sing or a scripture that is read just cuts through the distance. You ever had that experience? Where you're like, oh yeah. It's like drinking water. It's like, ah. And it cuts through. And I think our faith needs moments when we can say, it's good for us to be here. When something cuts through the distance and when God's presence is more known and felt than before. And you may be in a place in your faith right now where the, uh, as Depeche Mode saying, the personal Jesus is gone. That's a distant memory. Or you may have been through enough hell in your past church experiences 
that something like a personal Jesus feels very out of touch, out of reach. Or you may have ended up in a place where Jesus has become just like a still frame of a past life, of a past faith. And as far as wonder and awe go, not even on your radar. And I get that because I go through those times too. I know that like pastors aren't supposed to say that, but we go through that too. We go through seasons of like, I don't know, but I have to get up there and say stuff. Today's not one of those days. I'm loving this, but (laughs) in my 17 years of standing in front of you people, like there's definitely been Sundays, stretches of Sundays where I'm like, just read the notes, you know, just read the stuff that you wrote down. So we all have those times. But the prayer is for those moments of grace where Christ becomes real. You know, this has been the season of Epiphany, and Epiphany is just about moments of awakening, of seeing things about Jesus that you've never seen before, or things that have grown dim with time. It's a season to break through the familiar and to be surprised again by Jesus. I love the words uh, in the collect for today, the prayer that we prayed, at least this section, where we pray, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be what? Strengthened to bear our cross. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means in layman's terms. It means life is tough. Life is a struggle. And somehow in the struggle, we can become blind to the presence of God. And so the prayer here is that we would be strengthened by his presence, his face, to bear our cross, to live this life day in and day out. And these moments of presence and grace that carry us forward in a life that is so often marked by suffering and doubt, we pray for that grace to know Christ beyond just the stories on the pages of the Bible. I don't have a title for this sermon, but I think it would be something like, just stay in touch. Just stay in touch. In these moments of beauty and wonder, they sometimes happen. And when they do, we can say, it was good for us to be here. Don't need a love list. Don't need a best 